Textbooked. You're listening to Untextbooked. This is a history podcast for the future that gives young people like us agency and voice in our education. I'm your host, Gabe Hostin. I'm producer Caroline Summers. Follow on Textbooked wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. Hello, leaders of Scientology. We are anonymous. Um, I'm a little creeped out. What is this? What you're hearing is the very first video from Anonymous. Over the years, we have been watching you. This video came out 15 years ago. Anonymous has therefore decided that your organization should be destroyed. For the good of your followers, for the good of mankind and for our own enjoyment, we shall proceed to expel you from the internet and systematically dismantle the Church of Scientology in its present form. Sounds like it came out of a movie. Right? The visuals are these ominous time lapses of the sky and buildings. There's a very steampunk vibe. And let's put this in the context of 2008. YouTube was a playground of cat videos. This video is a few months older than the very first iPhone. You have nowhere to hide, because we are everywhere. So who exactly is Anonymous? Why are they declaring war against Scientology? In 2008, Anonymous was a loosely organized collection of people who hung out on this image board named 4chan. You can guess by the name of the group, Anonymous, that the group members were Anonymous. They went by pseudonyms and wore Guy Fox masks if they ever met up in person. Makes sense. So it's probably impossible to know who actually was in this group. Anonymous eventually became this sort of global hacktivist movement. That is this week's expert. Gabriella Coleman is an anthropologist. She studies life online. Okay, that's fascinating. She is the author of Hacker, Hoaxer, Whistleblower, Spy, The Many Faces of Anonymous, which is a great book. Right now, she's a professor at Harvard but she was living in New York City when Anonymous was gaining traction. So I noticed that you did your undergrad at Columbia as well, and you spent a lot of time in New York City. How do you think that impacted like how you became interested in Anonymous? Is like a lot of it based out of New York City? It is, actually. There is a sort of intimate connection. Anonymous eventually became this sort of global hacktivist movement. Right. Its roots were in internet trolling and the image board 4chan, where people who were anonymous kind of banded together to prank or harass others. But there was this moment in 2008 when there was this big pranking trolling campaign against the Church of Scientology, and that morphed into an actual protest movement. And when it morphed into that protest movement, there were some big protests in New York City. And I was in a, an assistant professor at NYU. And so I was able to sort of attend the protests and meet some of these formerly very anonymous people. And that's when I sort of started to, to study anonymous. There's this really interesting progression from trolling to genuine activism. Anonymous got its start on 4chan. This was an edgy part of the internet. It is known as a meme factory and also a place where racist, sexist, and homophobic trolls flourished. Some of the individuals who had been involved did what they did with Anonymous under the banner of Anonymous for their own enjoyment, for fun. Maybe they cared a bit about some internet issues like censorship, which is what got them to protest the Church of Scientology, which was trying to censor a video of Tom Cruise. And it just comes to show, I think, that you don't know the conditions under which people will decide to become political. And I think that's just an important lesson. So it was really exciting, but it was also 
mysterious and hard to understand how they were organized and who was getting involved because in that period, they truly were anonymous insofar as, you know, people would shield their name for kind of legal reasons and reputational reasons. As an anthropologist, it was just hard to get a handle on who exactly was behind the mask and how they organize themselves. And, you know, after serious fieldwork, I was able to kind of uncover some of that. But that also was something that really drew me in. Was there some kind of central figurehead to this organization, Anonymous? Not exactly. Anonymous has a completely decentralized organizational structure. There is no club president. There's no internal reporting structure. The organization is grouped by loose nodes, and users come together based on their interests. I think later on, as Anonymous became more global in 2010, 2011, where there were nodes all over the world, where there really was a lot of organizing online and chat rooms, where there was a lot of cyber activity, distributed denial of service attacks when you attack websites and basically render them inaccessible. It's not a hack. But there was also a lot of hacking as well. You're a computer science major. What is distributed denial of service? Distributed denial of service, or DDoS, sounds fancy and complicated. But in reality, it's not. Basically, this is when an internet server gets flooded with an excessive amount of traffic. After posting that video, anonymous users came together to flood the Scientology website with DDoS attacks, rendering the site useless. I asked Gabriella about the shift from just trolling to political activism in well-known operations like WikiLeaks. So the node that started to protest the Church of Scientology, uh, they called themselves Chinology, and they had groups all over Europe and the United States. And while they had online message boards where they would do a lot of organizing, some of the more robust groups were meeting in person and going to protest the Church of Scientology in different cities. And what's interesting was that over time, this node actually started to disassociate itself from illegal methods like DDoSing, distributed denial service attacks, and, and hacking. And so in September 2010, there was a different group of people who wanted to sort of support piracy and go after the intellectual property associations. And they wanted to use some of these illegal methods. And so Chinology people were like, no, no, you can't do that on our chat rooms. And so they just broke away. And they indeed embraced those methods. And so a new node was kind of created later that really, in some ways, embraced some of the original trolling methods, but now used them politically. And so initially, they were just going to sort of support piracy. But when there was a big banking blockade against the whistleblowing organization WikiLeaks, some of those individuals decided to support WikiLeaks and they coordinated a large distributed denial of service campaign against MasterCard and PayPal that no longer accepted donations for WikiLeaks. And the response was just monumental. So many people showed up from the internet. And so that's really when that new node was catapulted into the media. And all of a sudden, this wasn't just about Scientology. This wasn't just about piracy. But this was about something much larger. Now let's take a step back to really understand who was behind the mask. I think a large portion of individuals, especially post-2011, who got involved, were getting involved to support 
the massive social movements that were unfolding at the time from the Arab Spring in the Middle East and Africa to the Occupy movement, which was a fight against the 1% in Wall Street. And so the great majority of those individuals were just doing this for very political reasons. They wanted to see a better world. They wanted to see the end of dictatorial violence. They wanted to see a free internet that respected privacy. A handful of people were there just because it was fun and interesting. Now, one thing that's interesting is that, you know, with some small political collectives, you often have to be on the same political page. You know, you're all socialists or something. With Anonymous, that didn't matter. Now, that doesn't mean everyone was accepted. The time that Anonymous was very strong was a time where the kind of far right had not really yet congealed publicly. And for sure, if you were some raging Nazi and showed up on the chat rooms, people would be like, ah, I don't, I think you're in the wrong place, right? There were people who really were fighting hate, racism, rape culture, the abuse of corporations. Their agenda was liberal to left. But they didn't care if you were more on that liberal side or more on that left side. From like your anthropological perspective, how does the nameless nature of Anonymous contribute to its impact as a collective? Anonymous, the name Anonymous. There's so many fascinating elements just about both the name and the fact that the hacktivist collectives and the activist collectives were anonymous in the sense that individuals tended to use pseudonymous names. So it was maybe like a nickname, and you really didn't know the legal identity behind the individual, even though people did accrue kind of a reputation just because they did use stable nicknames. But both the name anonymous that anyone could use is important because it really grew into this kind of many-headed hydra where individuals from Mexico to Malaysia to Australia just took the name. And there was activity just in so many different places, so much so that it was almost impossible to like track them in a global sense. Now, some people think that the name and the practices around anonymity were being used simply to kind of hide from the law. And it's certainly the case that post-2011, there were hackers who were hacking into governments and corporations. And this was, from a legal perspective, highly illegal. And to be sure, some people were using these pseudonymous names to protect themselves from the law. However, the great majority of individuals who were involved in Anonymous were not breaking the law. So what it created was internally to Anonymous was an ethic of equality and solidarity. You did this for the sake of Anonymous, not to use your relationship to Anonymous to accrue reputation, let's just say on Twitter or Facebook. And so that's where the naming becomes interesting. And I would say it's something, you know, positive in a society that kind of elevates individualism. The public had a very different reaction to Anonymous. Reactions ranged from fear and panic to confusion. On the other hand, let's just say some activists who might support the types of activities that Anonymous got involved in, some people could not support them because they were anonymous. They just felt like they were cowards. There was no accountability. Others, you know, loved that they were anonymous precisely because it wasn't about fame and recognition, right? And so really it was a mixed bag in terms of the public perception of anonymous. People joined anonymous for different reasons. 
A lot of people were younger, like our age, and getting involved because it was something interesting to do on the internet. And I quote, for the lols. For the lols? Is that like 2008 internet humor? In your book, one of the things that stood out to me was you including the chat logs. It's interesting because a lot of it is like a little bit hateful language and like a little bit of like, you know, just random dark internet like humor. But do you think that the story of Anonymous could be told without the chat logs? You put on the table two important and related, but also different issues. So I'm going to address them both. One is about chat logs. And then one is, yeah, about the sort of offensive culture from which Anonymous came and what that sort of means ethically and politically. At different moments in Anonymous's history, chat rooms, internet relay chat, which is not unlike Slack for those that may have used Slack, that's where people would gather to discuss and organize some of the channels and rooms were public, some were private. And I, I don't think you could understand Anonymous anthropologically without having been in those chat rooms. They were just really where the pulse of the movement was organizationally. And the conversations were just so fascinating, often quite chaotic. But some big decisions that the collective made happened through those very conversations, right? So seeing them unfold or having others give me some private chat logs after the fact really gives a sort of texture around just what happened and how it happened that I think if you just sort of interview people after the fact, you really miss a lot. So then the other issue you raise is precisely, you know, Anonymous came from a very offensive world. You know, and it was one in which at the time that kind of trolling culture had not yet linked into any kind of political movement on the left or right. This is pre-2008. And so when Anonymous emerged from that kind of offensive world and laid roots, new roots in certain respects, where they started to care about things politically, certain individuals who'd been part of that earlier culture did not want to totally let go of a kind of embrace of linguistic transgression. You know, even within the collective, there was sometimes debate about whether that was good or bad, but there was a feeling that you couldn't totally police it. And, you know, I think that some individuals had been pretty naive about the fact that language, I think from their perspective, didn't necessarily harm people. But again, I think that's a naive perspective. And the rise of the far right that came out of similar board culture I think shows why it can be so problematic, right? So I think it's important not to whitewash that history. I think there's really important lessons. From the perspective of governments and corporations that are threatened by anonymous, how much of that is actually anonymous's skills? in being able to like compromise systems or is it just like a numbers game in that way? Yeah, so I mean, I think there was a moment in Anonymous's history where there was just so much hacking and leaking. This was in 2011, 2012, that there was almost this overblown, accentuated fear of Anonymous where sort of like, oh my God, are we going to get like hacked? And I think also because they commanded so much attention, media attention. Journalists would cover the news of hacks, but Anonymous would also hack to find private documents from corporations, then leak those documents to journalists and reporters who would vet and publish the information. It wasn't simply that 
there is a fear of hacking because a lot of organizations, whether it's corporations or governments, are getting hacked all the time. It was just their ability to kind of drum up so much journalistic attention that struck a lot of fear in CEOs and these sorts of things. That said, you know, one of the, again, interesting things is at a certain point in Anonymous's history, they've kind of figured out, wait a minute, we can sometimes hack, let's just say, a corporation to try to find incriminating information and leak that to journalists. And whether or not that requires deep technical skills, it just depends on who they are attacking. Like sometimes anonymous or some in the present. So for example, there's a group that doesn't use the name anonymous, but they're called Guayacama. And they do a lot of hacking and leaking and they're very political. And they have, for example, targeted the Mexican military and have taken their emails. And those emails have really provide journalists with a lot of incriminating evidence around the Mexican military. And so far, what's super interesting is that in the anonymous era, a lot of the hackers got caught. Not all of them, but a lot. And the, the groups that have been inspired by them, like Phineas Fisher, who directly credits Jeremy Hammond Anonymous for what they do, they've not been caught. And so they don't strike as often, but they're also more successful in their security. Okay. All right. Anonymous kind of, you know, like determines themselves as like a vigilante. You know, they're watching the corporations, they're watching the governments. Do you think that they do a good job of that like self like justice system, like keeping themselves in check? Is it like a who watches the watchman type of situation? Right. I think you're spot on. It is a kind of vigilante form of justice. Generally, I think that they're so punching up at some level. They're just targeting certain organizations and corporations that have such a bad legal track record that caused so much harm. And in a society in which the governments can't seem to bring them to justice, that personally, I tend to be okay with not all, because there are some exceptions, and I think that certain things can be done better at times. But if there are certain individuals who are willing to be like, well, you know, we know the Mexican military, to take one example, might be behind the ruthless murder of journalists and student activists, and the Mexican government is not doing enough to bring them to justice. If a group is willing to kind of take on the risk to hack and find that information, that then journalists publish. I, I see it as a kind of form of very risky whistleblowing. There's a certain type of accountability in the fact that journalists are reporting on it and a certain type of accountability in that there's a, a huge legal risk in people taking on this action, right? And many have been caught. I think this does point to certain failures of our justice system or how you might deal with corporations, governments who break the law. You know, in an ideal world, I think our governments would be functioning enough where we wouldn't need that. But since that's not the case, I think that, yeah, certain types of these interventions are such that, you know, one must ask about the kind of ethics of this and the politics. But I don't see them as sort of like all powerful actors that are causing a lot of harm, especially when they're doing the kind of hacking and leaking for whistleblowing. It's been like almost 10 years, I think, since your book is published. You know, has anything changed since then? There have been these 
little bursts of activity, like in the summer of 2020, there were some big actions. I do think their legacy really lies in groups like Phineas Fisher and Guayacama. Some of the groups that have come in their wake have been a lot less visible and prolific, but they've also been really effective insofar as they have engaged in these hacks and leaks, where the leaks have been funneled to journalists who have written really important, powerful stories about wrongdoing. Sometimes it has led to the kind of very direct ramifications against certain corporations. And none of these groups have been caught. In some ways, I think that's where the legacy of Anonymous lies, is not with Anonymous. It's with the hacktivist groups like Phineas Fisher, who have learned from them directly, have improved upon their kind of mistakes, and are continuing to do that hacktivist work in a more deliberate and surgical manner. And so that's where I think one looks to for trying to understand how Anonymous has changed things, right? And so in, in some ways, what's interesting, because this is a history podcast, I mean, in internet time, like 10 years is a lot, right? And you can see how something that kind of came into being exploded and then sort of like, you know, waned. As it waned, it left behind a legacy that is still very much with us today around this hacking and leaking by hacktivist groups using different names, but they're still anonymous. Yeah, I guess anonymous is like an adjective or anonymous as like the proper noun gets a little confusing. That's right. I sometimes <laughs> refer to as big A anonymous, which is what we've mostly talked about. And then some of these groups like Phineas Fisher are little A anonymous and they use different names, but pretty much the same tactics. And who knows, maybe some of the same individuals are still involved. We don't know. Well, I think that is all I have to ask for you today. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Gabriella Coleman is the author of Hacker, Hoaxer, Whistleblower, Spy, The Many Faces of Anonymous. She also hosts a podcast from the BBC named Hackers and is a professor of anthropology at Harvard University. So, Caroline, I want to pick your brain a bit. You study computer science. How did reading this book and talking with Gabriella change how you think about hackers? I think that this book and this literature in general is super important to really fully understand the internet from a social view rather than just learning the technical details of bits and wires. I think both reading the book and talking with Professor Coleman, I started to question how does one protest the internet, since it is not completely owned by one party. Reading about Anonymous as a form of activism changed the way I think about hackers, not as criminals, but as people with political motives. What did you take away from this conversation? I think that there are still a lot of issues that need to be solved with the internet, but I think gaining an anthropological perspective really gives more nuance to how our society is affected through media. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you find your podcasts. Write us a review. Tell us what you think of Untextbooked. Learn more at untextbook.com. Sign up for emails and become a member for added perks. Plus, every week, we share a glossary of terms and other learning resources designed for teachers and students. And for behind-the-scenes content, follow us on Instagram at Untextbooked. I'm producer Caroline Summers. And I'm Gabe Hostin. Thanks to the History Collab, Fernanda Rain and CeCe Payne. Untextbook is produced by Pod People, Rachel King, Amy Machado, Danielle Roth, Hannah Pedersen, Michael Aquino, and Shay Woditz.